This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've lived and worked in Fayetteville, Arkansas for almost 30 years. Just so you know, I got my psychology degree at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School alongside a bunch of very nice psychiatric residents. So it was a really wonderful training. I don't know why I threw that in today. I just wanted to do it. But I started Self Work five years ago in order to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be very interested in emotional and psychological issues, maybe you're in therapy, to those of you who've just been diagnosed or you're having something happen in your life that you're looking for answers for, but also to a third group of you who you're far from convinced, if not even skeptic, about mental health treatment, therapy, and I wanted self-work to give you just a little chance to see how a therapist might talk and think, and certainly guide those people that are honoring her by being in her office. And then she turns around, or I turn around, and share what I've learned from my own patients and give it to you. This week and next week, we're going to be featuring interviews that I've done, and this week, it's with Dr. Brian Primack. Imagine (laughs) my delight when I got something from Dr. Primack's publicist, And I was reading about this great new book called You Are What You Click. And I thought, oh, that would be a really interesting thing to learn more about. And as I read his bio, he's from Fayetteville, Arkansas, (laughs) or he's just moved here. Actually, he's an award-winning, internationally acclaimed expert on the relationships among media, technology, and health. He's got a master's from Harvard, an MD from Emory, and a PhD in behavioral science from the University of Pittsburgh. Wow, that's a lot of letters after your name. He actually developed a multi-million dollar research program centered on how media and technology influence health. And he has talked all over the world to so many organizations He's been featured in the New York Times, NPR's Here and Now, All Things Considered, U.S. News and World Report, The Today Show. Do I have to go on? I don't think so. So why is he in Fayetteville, Arkansas? He's just become the dean of the College of Education and Health Professions here at the university. And I think he told me he's in charge of the training of 5,000 students here. So he has got a lot going on. But really, what I liked most about the book was his teaching of how we're all wooed by marketing techniques, and I think you'll find that fascinating. Plus, he's just finished research on a question that's plagued everyone in my field who sees depression rates going up and social media consumption doing the same. So, what's the relationship there? Do depressed people turn more to social media, or does more social media consumption and scrolling, etc., cause depression? Which is it? So Brian has the answer. Now, he doesn't say to stop social media, not at all. He wants us to know how it's affecting us, how you become what you click. So we govern it, and it doesn't govern us, which is exactly aligned with SelfWorks' message. What can you do about it, right? Let's first hear a message from AG1 or Athletic Greens, one of our wonderful sponsors, and what they've committed to doing for the environment as well as their commitment to help you get and stay healthier. I take it every morning myself. I promise it has really helped my energy. 
our partner, AG1, has a product I use every day. I started taking Athletic Greens, frankly, because they were interested in sponsoring self-work, and I never recommend something to you without trying it first. With one scoop of AG1, whose taste is somewhere between sweet and tart to me, you'll get 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, probiotics, adaptogens, and whole food source superfoods, which support everything from your gut to your immune system to your energy level. I love it because whether I'm home and about to go out for a walk or traveling and about to spend time with friends and family, I can start my day proactively, knowing I'm doing something for my own self-care. If you're like me, self-care can get lost for sure. In fact, its founder, after having severe gut issues, realized he was taking over $100 a day worth of supplements, which had their own very complicated dosage routine, so he created Athletic Greens. To make it easy, and because you're a self-work listener, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is to visit athleticgreens.com slash selfwork. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash selfwork to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So again... Let's talk to Dr. Brian Premack, just Brian. We may not have been even 10 miles apart when we did this interview by Zoom, but he was a fascinating and really wonderfully warm, engaging guest. It's my honor to introduce you to Brian Premack. So, Brian, thank you so much for being here this morning. I really appreciate it. I know self-work listeners will as well. Uh, Your book is called You Are What You Click. And I loved the premise of the book, which was mostly about, at least the way I understood it, about balancing your social media use, where there are three components. You say selective, be selective, be positive, and be creative. I I was wondering, how did you choose those particular three components? Yeah, well, um, thank you, first of all, for having me on the program, and um, I I really appreciate being here. And it's a great question. Um, How do we get to the quote-unquote food pyramid for social media? And it's really been a very slow and prolonged process because we've been studying social media and mental health for um, a decade now. And during that time, um, we've been trying to think to ourselves, okay, what is the ideal food pyramid? In other words, uh, how do we create something that's it's got to be simple, right? I mean, it can't be 126 different things that you have to remember or check off, but it also can't be um, very, very specific to today's um, world because it's got to be flexible, Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to have something that will still be relevant in the future. I mean, right now, TikTok is the hottest thing out there in terms of social media platforms. And a few years ago, it didn't exist. Exactly. Exactly. You point that out. But, you know, I, this is so timely, an interview, because, of course, even Facebook and Instagram have now come out with this with these studies that show that especially Instagram is horrible for teenage girls uh, experiencing eating disorders or suffering from eating disorders. and. And you talk a lot about how the relationship between different levels of social media use and depression. And so I, I wonder what your 
Have you been extremely concerned about this? You noted Jean Twingy's work. I'm, I'm, I'm probably crucifying her last name. Oh, no problem. Yeah, no. Jean uh, and I are, are uh, friends and colleagues, and uh, she pronounces it Twangy. Twangy. I yeah. never knew that. <laughs> it's okay. that a long time ago. Yeah, but I, I, I think that, um, yes, you, you're absolutely right that it's, it's more um, salient than ever because of what's going on. Um, you may also know that Facebook is thinking of rebranding. To Meta, something meta, like that? Exactly. In, yeah. in other words, you, you, it's sort of, and Meta means the next level. Yes. So you're sort of creating this almost Meta universe, another universe in which we'd all be existing um, different from our regular lives. And of course, many social scientists are are quite concerned about this because our bodies. I had a shiver go down my spine. When I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it almost sounds like a dystopian sci-fi of some sort because, um, you know, our our bodies, our minds um, have evolved over millions of years to be adapted to a very specific natural world um, with with sun and sky and actual smiles rather than emojis and um, movement and human contact. And um, obviously the things that people do in social media, uh, marketers and platforms, they try to mimic those things, right? So instead of a smile, we have an emoji. You know, we've got a, a, a representation of that. Instead of a... Um, an actual neighborhood, a physical neighborhood, we've got uh, these sort of uh, virtual neighborhoods that pop up, virtual communities on uh, Reddit, and you can create your own virtual community, et cetera, et cetera. And in some ways, those things um, are substitutes, but in other ways, they're often not the best kind of substitute. So I don't know if you uh, read Michael Pollan's work around food, but he um, he coins this idea of there's food, you know, things that have actually existed for years, like apples and, you know, uh, things that grow in the ground and, you know, fish in the sea and things like that. And then there's food-like substances that provide calories absolutely if you get some kind of a, uh, a a a pastry that is you know completely created in a laboratory pretty much um it, it will give you calories but does it give you and it may, might be apple flavored right so it gives you the flavor of the apple but it doesn't give you the vitamins of the apple and does it give you the the fiber of the apple and those other things about the apple in terms of even just that it's crunchy. And so maybe that supports teeth because that's what we've been used to over time. And I think of a lot of social media as social like experiences. Interesting. There are certain things that they can deliver, of course, you know, a, but are they really delivering on that deeper level? I mean, sometimes they can, but not necessarily. But I also loved your Goldilocks story and your Goldilocks story was, can you, you tell it? I I think it's very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So 
we were really hoping for the Goldilocks sweet spot. <laughs> this is often the way it is in um, social science where there's a tricky balance because balances are very hard um, to maintain. And so it's really nice to have some kind of a, um, a middle ground. So, for example, do you remember uh, maybe a decade or two ago, it was a big thing about one glass of red wine a day? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, so what the researchers had found in some um, uh, in in some studies, not all, you know, and it depends on what outcome you're looking for and that type of thing, but is that they had found well, yes, you know, consistent with a lot of other social uh, and and health research, a lot of alcohol is not a great thing, <laughs> not a great thing cognitively, physically. Um, addiction, et cetera, et cetera. However, they did find that there was this sort of sweet spot. You know, they found some uh, curves that almost gave this little indication that, you know, that one glass of red wine a day. Now, of course, some of my patients came in and their glass was like the size of my head. So you've got to be careful about what you mean by glass, you know, <laughs> but, but the idea is that we were really hoping to do the study that um, would very carefully look at different levels of social media and that would find that perfect, what, what I think of as a U-shaped curve, mm -hmm. you know? And so the, the tops of the U is maybe higher levels of depression. The middle of the bottom of the U is, you know, lower levels of depression. We were kind of thinking, well, maybe a little bit of social media um, you know, will be associated with lower depression, maybe, you know, really extreme amounts. That might be one side of the U. Um, you know, we're really concerned about that. Maybe none at all, though, might also be um, associated with depression because, you know, you're missing out on stuff. Yes. Um, you know, you're not using some of the normative uh, ways that we have to connect and communicate in today's world. So, that's what we were expecting when we went into this big study that we would end up with some big uh, talking point. 46 minutes a day is the perfect amount of time on social media. That's not at all what we found in that study. What we found was a straight line. Basically, the people who had the least depression were the people who used uh, very little or no social media at all. And there was basically a straight line um, with each level of increased social media being associated with an increase in the risk of having depression. Now, the interesting thing about that, and the last thing that you know, I'll say about this particular Goldilocks situation is that um, we still thought, well, all that means is that they track together, that more people who use more social media are also more depressed, but we don't really know which direction it goes in. Yeah, is what's common what? Yes. Is it that uh, people who use social media become more depressed? Or is it that people who are depressed kind of retreat into social media? And that was a really important unanswered question until about nine months ago. Really? Wow. Yes, because um, we published a paper in December of 2020 in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine that's the first longitudinal data that demonstrates that the amount of social media used today is has exactly that same linear relationship with the 
odds of you becoming depressed over the next six months. So we really do have directionality. That's really fascinating. That's fascinating. Yes. And, um, and, and, and in the other direction, there was no relationship, you know, so the, there was no relationship between people who become depressed starting to use more social media. So, it, you know, one study can't give you the absolute definitive answer, especially in complex social science areas like this. But it certainly was uh, something to think about. The reason that we didn't hear much about it is a lot was going on in this world in December 2020. This was right while COVID was raging. It's right while the first doses of the vaccine were being tested. It's right while we were coming off of the election. And so um, I don't fault them for, for not having us in the, more prominently in the news cycle. I know I had a book come out two months before the pandemic, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay, so this leads me to a couple of things that you talked about, This, this where we're going with this discussion. First of all, you talk about the importance of a, of a resting state of mind where you rest from the stimulation that social media gives, the, the colors, the, 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 the notifications, all that stuff. And then you also say, we're playing a part wherever we go, and that's exhausting. Mm-hmm. And I'm very interested in perfectionism and how it's a camouflage for a lot of very painful uh, trauma. And so I was so this this quote just jumped out at me about we're playing a part wherever we go. And I know that's true because or for some people using social media, maybe not all. I've had so many people talk to me about how depressed they are and and how they're struggling. And then they'll show me something on their Instagram account and, you know, it it doesn't look like that at all. And so I wonder if, if that's what you were talking about, It that there are too many people, I, I guess, is there a distinction between people who use social media more honestly and openly versus people who use social media as a way to create almost like Facebook, maybe trying to think about this meta world, trying to create another personality for themselves or another identity, probably a better word. Yeah. I think that, I mean, those are really great points. Um, and I, I I agree that there are big differences between um, the way that people use social media. And I, I think, and there's a lot more to learn, but we have learned some things that I think will interest you. So, for example, um, you know, getting at this idea of, of what about, you know, using social media in this way, maybe I'm being more authentic about myself, right? Versus I'm creating a persona that's really nothing like me. And that can be sort of exhausting. And maybe it also creates misunderstanding. (laughs) You know, people actually think you're being arrogant, whereas really you want to be vulnerable. Yes. And so in person, um, a person very well might sense that vulnerability or you might be more likely to, to share that, you know, but in, you know, hiding behind your social media persona, that's not something that you really want to, you know, show or explore. And that can lead to a lot of that painful perfectionism that you're talking about. So one example of a study that I think does get to this is, is we conducted a study just saying, how many of the people that you contact and interact with on social media are people that you know from real life? 
Mm -hmm. Interesting question. And, you know, you might think to yourself, well, that would be very little. But we actually found that in general, in today's world, and this is among young adults ages 18 to 30. So, you know, keep that particular demographic in mind. About 35%, they said, of their friends on social media, their contacts on social media, were people that they had never actually met in person. So what you've got is this, this pretty solid range of people. Some people are totally sticking to just people, you know, they would say 0%. They're sticking to just people that they know face-to-face. Other people, it might be 70%, you know, maybe maybe two-thirds of the people that I interact with on social media are people that I've never actually met before. Well, what we found that I think is really uh, critical in this study is that the people, there was a direct relationship between having more non-face-to-face contacts and having more depression. Wow, okay. The more people that you said, oh, it's 50% of my people I've never met, then you'd be much more likely to be depressed compared to someone who said, oh, it's about 20% that I've never met. And again, it was a linear relationship and it was very strongly indicative of, I think, exactly what you're just coming to by thinking this through as a clinician and as a practitioner, because you're seeing, um, and so it's nice to tri- triangulate the, the sort of qualitative work with the, the quantitative epidemiologic work. You know, what you're saying is, well, wait a second, if, if you're, um, you know, really struggling with depression, but this is what you're demonstrating to the world, then, I mean, isn't that um, painful? Isn't that a struggle in itself? Doesn't that make it so much harder to really deal with the messiness of life and, and be good with yourself the way you are and not needing to be perfect? Let me ask you this, because you're talking about these studies with 18 to 30 year olds, which I think is important because then you say really the group, the age group that is growing the fastest on social media is 65 plus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then when I think about the more you're on social media, the more likely you are to get depressed. Are you particularly concerned about people 65 and older using social media more because they're more likely to get depressed? And that's kind of a, you know, you get older and you get, it's tough. Um, I, I, you know, there's certain things that you face as you get older that you 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 don't you they're new. They're, they take some new skills. So, what what are your thoughts about that? You know, it, it's a great question, Margaret, and it is truly unanswered because it could, I believe, go either direction. So this makes it a critical study to do. So mm-hmm. what I mean by that is the following. So I, I think you're absolutely right. One possibility is that um, we would see the same kinds of relationships older, yeah. you know, between more social media use being related to more dissatisfaction, more anxiety, and even more loneliness because maybe social media works the same in that milieu as it does with young people. Maybe older people also are having 
um, comparison syndrome problems and thinking, oh, that person's life worked out so well, but my life is only just normal. You know, I've got some successes and some failures, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, so it absolutely could be that more uh, technology and social media use among the, the elderly um, or just older folks in general, not necessarily, even necessarily the, the elderly, you know, is problematic. On the other hand, Mm-hmm. We have a real problem in our society with older um, individuals not being, not having as many um, human connections right. naturally. Um, you know, for example, in Asian societies, people over the age of 60, um, maybe half the time live in the home with younger family, you know, with grandchildren and that kind of thing. In, in our society, it's between five and 10%. Oh, it's very low. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so in a way you might think to yourself, and I, I know that, um, you know, uh, my mother-in-law um, is almost 80 and lives with us. And I know that during the pandemic, um, a lot of technology has been a real lifeline for her. Mm-hmm. You know, she's been able to do her knitting groups uh, that she would go to in person over Zoom when the coffee shop wasn't available. And now they're doing a little bit of both. You know, they're maybe going to try to start, uh, you know, going in person as things open up more, but she'll continue to have that regular Wednesday evening knitting group and the Sunday morning knitting group and that kind of thing. So in a lot of ways, it just represents this double-edged sword, you know, and at this point, we know that it can catalyze connection and warmth and generosity and can also breed feelings of depression and anxiety and isolation. So the question becomes, how do we balance these uh, challenges? And I think in that particular population, there's a lot more work that needs to go on to really figure out what those relationships are before we can give definitive advice on um, you know, well, this is something you can do and this is something you shouldn't do. However, I do think, and the reason that I have a chapter in the book about this is that the same, using the same pyramid, um, selective, positive, creative, in the meantime, while we're waiting for, you know, the decades of research that hopefully will come about this is our best bet. Um, we find that when people are more um selective, when they're actively choosing the things that are useful and valuable, rather than just letting the platform kind of <laughs> um, feed them whatever, they, yeah. whatever they want, which is just more eyeballs. They don't want necessarily the same mission as we as individuals want, you know, connection. Um, you know, they uh, ultimately want people to be on the platform longer. They want people to send messages to more people and larger, you know, uh, cohorts of people instead of one-on-one communication, you don't get as much, you know, advertising money for, right? Right. And so um, being very selective about what those really positive things are. I mean, it's hard. It's kind of like if you go into a a huge buffet with every imaginable food in the world, you know, how do you become selective at a time like that rather than just letting whatever's in the front and looks, you know, and is just going right into your emotional pleasure center, you know, it's not, it's, it's, um, 
it's not you choosing it. It's you being lured and seduced by just something that's right in front of you right then. And I, and, you know, of course, I hope most people are aware that, you know, Twitter and, and all these, these profiles or platforms feed you what you've been looking at anyway. They, they, they precisely, that's why so many people think, to my knowledge, of they think everyone agrees with them because everyone they see on Twitter agrees with them because Twitter feeds them that. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved your section. It was at the very end on social media literacy. Mm-hmm. And I think this is so important for people to be able to realize what is being fed to them instead of like, like you said, what am I hungry for? What, am, what do I want to do? Am, do I want to govern this or be governed, as you say in the book? Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you. I, I'm very proud of that, that uh, part because I do think that it is a creative solution. Um, you know, a lot of times people deal with problematic exposures by saying, let's avoid it. Let's, let's censor this, you know. Um, but I think that being more media literate is, is more about empowering people. It's about teaching, uh, you know, the ways to analyze and evaluate what is in front of you. And that can be very, very empowering and can kind of help you to become more selective and more positive and more creative over time. And, you know, a lot of people, when I talk about this, they say, well, I'm literate, <laughs> you know, and I'm media literate. I, I know how to get on Facebook. Like, what are you talking about? You know, I I'm, I, I'm not one of these people who doesn't know how to turn on the computer. It's not about that. Mm-hmm. What it's about is a truly a deeper level that I don't think any, I mean, I've been studying media literacy for a couple decades and I still don't think I'm entirely media literate. I mean, the fact is that every time you go onto that platform, that color that's in the background was chosen for a very specific reason. I know. That font that you're looking at was chosen from hundreds of different fonts because of psychological reasons that they, you know, did experience experiments and determined that that's going to be the one that keeps you there the longest. That if there's a little bing that happens when one of your messages comes on, the exact tone and contour has been determined. So some people just kind of go on and they're, you know, they're very good users. They know what they're doing, but they're just kind of moving on. Some people are actively thinking to themselves, huh, I wonder why that message popped up in my feed first. Because a lot of people think, oh, it's because, you know, they really are trying to give me the message that I care about the most. But that's not really true. A message. I'm sorry. No, I just was okay. That, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, you know the um, the the formulas are all you know uh, proprietary, and so we don't know exactly. But when we do studies, you know, we find that um, the, the messages that appear to people are more likely to be ones that say are going to um, perpetuate more or are going to sell more. If, you know, if something in your message is related to the word car, (laughs) then that can immediately have, you know, uh, ads for cars coming up. And so, you know, even though you'd much rather um, interact with, you know, person A, B, and C, you're probably going to hear messages from D, E, and F because there is some kind of a financial incentive. So there's a section in the book 
um, called, you, you know, something to the effect of the stuff in the back of the room is probably yes. the best. So the question is, how do we get to that stuff in the back of the room? You know, if you walk into a buffet and your your favorite food is in is in the back of the room, how do you avoid not getting you know, overstuffed by um, <laughs> what's right there in front of you that's being aggressively um, served to you, um, you know, and is very, very shiny and all the spotlights are on it. Um, and that's why I think we really need, uh, you know, real strategies that I try to put out in the book to try to do that. Yeah, you do a really great job with that. I mean, I, I want to I want to make sure the listeners understand this is a very pragmatic book. It's yes, it's it's filled with some research, but the research is uh, well explained and and fun to read. And I I just think it's a a, um, a great guide on on what how to use social media to your best advantage. Let me ask, and I, oh, by the way, I love the, also the story about the feather pillow and gossip. You have to, you also talk to people about how it's so important to, to, to use it responsibly as well, to realize that your words can go a far, can go a long way, like a feather pillow being shaken and now go pick up all the feathers. I loved that story. Uh, let me ask you about one thing. Um, that as a clinician, I'm like, hmm, uh, you said you want to pursue positivity with a vengeance. What exactly, I mean, is that a directional thing? Is that a only be happy thing? What, what do you mean by that? You know, it's a very good question because, um, because I think it can be easily misinterpreted because I think that you know, it's also very important to realize that we as people in a clinical scenario need to realize that we're not going to be happy all the time. Right. And so that is not at all what um, this uh, section is um, trying to achieve. I think it's more in my mind, it's more about the idea that negativity is just very, very baked in to the social media experience. I compare it in the book to road rage (laughs) because if you're standing right in front of, you know, a person, oh, it's a nice little old lady, you know, oh, you know, I'm sorry, you know, and, and, you know, she accidentally cuts you off or something like that. And, you know, in the grocery store, you're like, oh, after you, you know, (laughs) you're trying to be as kind as possible, but in a car, right? You've dehumanized that person. It's not a human. It's that mean blue car, yeah. right? And so you're willing to yell at them and scream at them and <laughs> all kinds of stuff. And the same kind of thing happens in the social media world because of that standing behind the avatar. You know, it's yeah. much easier to have that kind of road rage because you don't, and Remember that study we talked about, about people you haven't met face to face. Well, the people that you have met face to face, if they say something um, awkward or that could be misinterpreted, you know, you know them from an entire face to face relationship and you know them well. So maybe you cut them some slack and you realize, oh, they're it's just a tone thing or or they didn't see read the message right or, you know, something other information to balance out whatever is irritating or or confusing or something like that. Exactly. All that other information is critical to actually think of that person as a human being. Mm -hmm. However, on social media, 
Um, often, and especially if we are interacting with people that we haven't necessarily met with in, uh, in person, then um, it's much easier to have those misunderstandings. It's much easier to think more negatively about the whole situation. Um, negativity bias is a thing. Um, this- I, I, I had a great example of this. A, a, a woman who's now a friend of mine, Sarah Fader, who wrote uh, uh, Two-Year-Olds or Assholes was her, uh, you know, <laughs> and it went viral. And I read it and I wrote a response very early on in my blogging career. And she took it as an attack because I was saying, you know, just remember that even you're thinking that your two-year-old or three-year-old, I can't remember now, is an asshole, is going to impact your actions toward that child. Well, she had gotten so much, um, mine was more of an and. Yeah, that age child could really, you know, be taxing and they can be, you know, they can be hard to deal with. And I had to kind of pursue her to say, because her first response to me was really like short and terse and shut up and all that stuff. And I'm not criticizing you. I understand the feeling. I just, I just think there's another facet to this. This is important. Probably, maybe a little too serious for such a funny. It was a very humorous post. Um, but now we're good friends, and because she said, "Oh, I didn't realize what your perspective was." I was. She didn't know me. Yeah. And so I, I totally get the message that we can make so many assumptions, and there's an anonymity about it. Like you say, I love the. The, it's like you're in a car and you're all protected. And so, yeah, that's great. Yeah. And I think that that is a, a perfect example um, of how that additional information helped clear things up. But that's not often the way things happen on social media. Oh. You know, the other uh, thing behind um, pursuing social media with a vengeance, I'm sorry, pursuing positivity with a vengeance is um, that negativity we've learned on social media is just very, very powerful. So this comes from a particular study that we did. Um, And what we did in the study is um, we looked at the amount of experiences that people had that were positive and the experiences that people had that were negative. And we looked how they were related to depression. And what we found was really interesting. And, you know, I I guess you might think that this is the way it would have been. But, you know, people who have more negative experiences are more depressed. People who have more positive experiences are less depressed. The interesting thing was that the magnitude of the relationship was completely different. The more negative experiences you had, it was very, very strongly related to more depression. But more positive experiences was only related to a tiny little decrease in depression. <laughs> so what that means is it's it's another reason for the injunctive of trying to pursue that positivity with a vengeance because the negative things, yes, they are going to happen. It's inevitable. But those negative things are just going to be very powerful. And this is a thing anyway. I mean, you know, our brain encodes negative information far, far, 
far greater than it does positive. It takes a lot of positive information for our brains to encode it, and negative seems to be absorbed much more quickly, which is an interesting phenomenon. I guess it was like a a way that you know if if you're going to run away from the from the the animal that's going to eat you then you know that that needs to stay more than you're enjoying the sunshine (laughs) yes yes exactly that is built into humans this idea of negativity bias i mean you can find an entire literature from the sociologic world about negative bias but there are a lot of things about the social media world that make that even more dramatic in other words you know it very well might be that Um, You know, you're uh, doing a one on one, you're having a coffee date with somebody and, you know, uh, 80 percent of the things that they say are just, you know, make you feel really good and positive. But there's one thing that that, you know, bothers you. But, you know, it's you at least know, you know, kind of where you stand with this person. You're able to think about it. Maybe you're able to, you know, sort of somehow integrate that into your you know, thinking and world. Whereas on social media, when there's a, a misunderstanding, a gaffe, a problem, you you have this sometimes this really deep fear because you don't know if hundreds of people are watching this, thousands right. of people. You don't know how long this is going to be with you for your Senate confirmation trial, for your getting into college, for you know a, a future you know boyfriend or girlfriend. I mean, and and so the bottom line is that there are just so many things about that milieu that that make that negativity bias even more dramatic. Yeah, that's a, I think it's a great point for all, us all to understand. So we're, we're going to, um, we're about to end the interview. Is there something that you're excited about or you would like the uh, My Self Work listeners to know about you or your work or whatever? Um. Well, just that we're continuing it. <laughs> we're trying to figure out, you know, what the next steps are. I mean, I did feel though for, I mean, it took me, um, you know, 15 plus years of researching this before I really felt ready to write a book about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it Because there are so many nuances, because there are so many things that 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 we need to be um, thinking about. And and so, you know, for the uh, for a long time, it was, you know what, the, it's just too complex right now. I don't have it all organized in my head. Um, I'm just not ready to put the book together. Other Mm -hmm. times it was, you know, we really need to do a study about, um, you know, tailoring your personality to your social media use, which is another big section that we talk about in the, in the book before we can really roll this out to people. But it really has been, it it was time. Um, And interestingly, it was time even before COVID we were ready with sort of, um, you know, selective, positive, creative. And, you know, these are general ideas, but ones that um, can still be very personalized and ones that will be flexible and relevant in the future. They're simple enough, but they can still be personalized enough. Um, But then when COVID happened, um, you know, I already had an initial draft of the book, but half of it changed. Wow. Because, not because the, the basic ideas were, um, uh, were extremely different, but because there was so much 
catalyzing of our relationship with technology during COVID. Mm. We, we saw more of the good. We saw more of the bad. We saw great examples of various different things um, in different age groups. And so, um, so there was a lot of rewriting to try to make sure that this really would be, um, you know, not just based in all of that research over the past decade or two, but also very, very relevant as possible for people today. And yeah, that personality stuff, I think, is very interesting. Um, I took the test. <laughs> well, people can actually, well, you know, because you read the book, but um, if if you don't have the book, you can go to youarewhatyouclick.com and you can actually take that personality test and see what your personality characteristics end up to be. And in the book, there's a separate chapter on each of those personality um, variances and people can, um, you know, and, and it gives suggestions for um, what kind of ways you might be best tailoring your personal social media use to those different personality characteristics. Yeah, that was a fun section. The, the whole book is, I, like I said, I, I read it over the weekend and um, it, it has some interesting ideas um, and, and it is a wonderful guide to personalize and individualize, I think, your own use of social media and to try to know what may be helpful to you and and maybe not so helpful to you. So mm-hmm. I thank you so much. I, I, if I, I said in the intro that uh, Dr. Premack is, is part of our Ar- University of Arkansas faculty and here in Fayetteville. I'm so delighted you're here. We're lucky to have you here in Arkansas. So uh, thank you. And I, and I thank you for being on self-work. I could not appreciate it more. Absolutely. No, this was a great discussion and, and thank you so much for your interest. I, I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you all for being here today. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Premack. I know I did. And I want to thank you for so many of your ratings and reviews. The book reviews on Perfectly Hidden Depression really increased. And I want to read this one from Red Leo 1987 that is an Apple podcast about self-work. This podcast has been super enlightening in my life. It explains so much about what I do and what my family has done in regard to depression and perfectionism. Dr. Margaret is super insightful, thank you, and very relatable. The episodes are bite-sized and easy to consume in an on-the-go life. I really like that comment because it tells me what y'all like about the podcast, and that's what I need to know from you. Thanks for all you do in the mental health field, Dr. Margaret. You have already started a tremendous healing in my life. What an honor that is. Thank you, Red Leo, for letting me know. And again, I'm so glad you're a listener to Self Work. And I'd love to hear more from you again, especially when you give me these specific comments about what you like. I want to make self-work what you want to listen to and what you need. So you can email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. You can leave me a speak pipe message, which is a voicemail message that you can find in the show notes or on my website, which is drmargaretrutherford.com. You can subscribe to drmargaretrutherford.com and you'll get a newsletter weekly from me with my podcast and a blog post and just little hints about what I've got going on and what you might be interested in. Love having every one of you here. Thank you so much. And please take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been 
Self-worth.